Hi there, this is Daniel Schwarzman, co-host of A Positive Jam, the podcast that breaks down the Hold Steady's classic 2004 debut album, The Hold Steady Almost Killed Me. Today's episode covers track two, The Swish, the first single off the record, or at least the one where they make a video, as we discuss, and the first real rocker. As with the last time, I'm speaking with my co-host, Mike Taylor, who sounds like this. It's a miss. And our guest, Matt Brooks, who sounds like this of the one-two punch to, to lead off the album. Here's what's great about The Swish. While Positive Jam set the template for the Hold Steady's ethos, The Swish set the roadmap for the band's musical and lyrical style. It sets the pattern for pop culture and geographical name drops, shows off Tag Kubler's classic rock-inspired guitar repertoire, and it flat-out wails. But there are some curious aspects about the song as well. Like, are we sure that the ending works? What does Joni Mitchell have to do with one of the Hold Steady's hardest rockers? It's hard not to smile when listening to The Swish, though, and we hope you get that same feeling from this conversation. Let's get started. Matt, just get us into The Swish. What's so great about this song? So if you are introducing yourself to the Hold Steady through this debut album. I think Positive Jam is a great track to get a first taste of what the Hold Steady is about. But I also view it as a as sort of Craig's throat clearing introduction. You know, the pacing of it and the lyrics and just the buildup is more, here's who we are and here's what we're about and here's what we're about to do. The Swish is the first actual rock song. For me, that's where the album really starts. The guitars in the intro, just the pacing of it and how it builds um, into the first verse. It's got a great sort of burn that really just gets you going. And then you're like, oh shit, this band's ready to, ready to bring it. And that's the way I feel every time I listen to this song. A set's about to start or they're, they're about to, to lay it all out there. So it's a fun way to sort of sink your teeth into this band, I feel like. When I was getting ready to record this podcast and studying up on the whole setting and stuff, I would play this while I was working out. And when the swish comes on, if you're on the treadmill or even if you're like walking between weight machines, you just like the same effect comes, I think, from like listening to some Rage Against the Machine songs where you just you feel your body kind of physically getting primed up. Yeah, your comment about the set at a show is starting or just about to start (laughs) is a great point. Uh, you also mentioned when we were talking before about the references in the song. And I think that's one thing that you get in Positive Jam. You get some, you know, he references the Kennedys getting shot and some other cultural touchstones. The Swish, I think, gets a lot more specific and detailed in terms of the references. And I'll just kick off with an insight that I found watching The Last Waltz which is the Martin Scorsese rockumentary about the band's final show. The opening line of the swish is pills and powders, baby powders and pills, which sets up that this song is a lot about sort of bragging about how hard you party and all your cool rock and roll experiences. In addition to that, pills and powders comes from a line from a Joni Mitchell song called Coyote. That song is a song that she performs with the band in The Last Waltz. So why are we talking about The Last Waltz? Because in interviews around the release of Almost Killed Me and Separation Sunday, Craig Finn and Tad Kubler 
two key figures in the hold steady. Craig is the singer, Ted is the guitar player. They reference the last waltz as a crystallizing moment. They were watching and they say that they looked at each other, each other, why don't bands sound like this anymore? There are also references to Rick Danko and Robbie Robertson in the Swish. So we know that it's a key inspiration for them. But what's funny to me is that this Joni Mitchell, the sort of sweet folk singer, would be the source of the opening lines of the Switch, which is Swish, which is this giant rock song. And then I looked at the lyrics for Coyote, which is the song where pills and powders come from. I think she's an underrated comparison to Gr- Craig Finn lyrically. If you've heard the song, you've heard Joni Mitchell singing it in her kind of sweet, we just come from different sets of circumstance. We just come from such different sets of circumstance. I'm up all night in the studio. The way the lyrics play out, they sort of sound like Craig Finn lyrics. So I'll just read some Coyote lyrics in the Craig Finn voice to give you a sense of how these two connect. I looked a coyote right in the face on the road to Baljenny near my hometown. We went running through the whisker wheat, chasing some prize down. And a hawk was playing with him. Coyote was jumping up and making passes. He had the same eyes just like yours under your dark glasses. Coyote right in the face. On the road to Baljenny near my old hometown. He went running through the whisker wheat, chasing some prize down. I feel like the whole study is kind of like this super masculine band in a lot of ways with the sort of rocking guitars and stuff. But Craig also mentions in interviews, you know, like why not a smart rock band? And I think that the opening lines coming from this Joni Mitchell song sort of play into this counterpoint of the whole study and their influences and inspirations coming from this sort of more thoughtful musicianship artistically inclined 70s set of performers that include like Joni Mitchell and the band. So the question I wanted to bring to you guys, even though you haven't watched The Last Waltz, you're familiar with the band and you're familiar with some of these 70s performers like Neil Young or Neil Diamond or Joni Mitchell. What's the connection between a band like the band and the Hold Steady? I think there are two ways you can sort of tie that in beyond the name drops in their different interviews and obviously calling out Robbie Robertson and Rick Danko here. I don't think musically I hear the band very much, except if you argue about the sort of camaraderie that comes across in the band's work, where it's clearly a unit or organism together. And I, I don't even know if I would go too far in that direction. I think it's the specificity of the lyrics, which is sort of what Joni Mitchell talking about Ball Jenny, which is somewhere in the middle of nowhere in Saskatchewan. That sort of specificity is a part of the band's lyrics, a part of their, whether it's, you know, talking about the union and King Harvest or obviously some of their big tracks. You think about name dropping Nazareth. I think that's a real echo. And then I would say the conscious shaping of the image and the throwback feel. The band obviously comes out in 1968. 
They've just been recording with Dylan in Big Pink in Woodstock, and they are coming out of nowhere. They were previously a rock and roll band and then a rock backup band for Dylan. And then all of a sudden they're playing this. It's still rock, but it's sort of the birth of Americana. It feels a little bit more old fashioned. It's familiar and fresh at the same time. And I think if you're trying to give a stamp on the hold steady, it's they're familiar and fresh at the same time. And so I think that that would be even more than the lyrical approach. I would say that would be what connects, which I wouldn't have thought until you had brought this idea in the preparation. Yeah, I agree that sonically, there's not a lot seemingly connecting the hold steady. But I think the idea of embracing being a bar band and being sort of a team or a squad that goes together. One thing that they mentioned in the last waltz is that they grew organically. They spent eight years just playing bars and they were just a bar band for eight solid years. After those eight years, they started playing music halls and shows. And then, you know, getting going in the late 60s, similar to the Hold, I mean, the Hold Steady, they were in their early to mid 30s when they formed that band. Craig and Tad had already been in Lifter Puller since 94. So they had been rockers for like 10 years before they even recorded this first album. So I think there's something to that of this like identifying as a sort of a band that grows organically. Brooks, what do you think? So many references in this song, just like dropping 70s and 80s pop culture left and right. And it's more about that in this song than it is about building this narrative around the familiar characters throughout the rest of the Hold Steady lyrics that we're, we get into in the songs that come after this on the album and in the future albums. It's sort of like setting the table in terms of time and place as far as influences go for them. You know, whether or not musically these are artists that they're necessarily drawing from quite a bit, or it's more just vibe and scene and attitude when you're going from the band to journey with Steve Perry and Neil Schoen to Nina Simone to Prince's bassist, Andre Simon. It's just like a total whirlwind through I think of the formative years of of Craig's early songwriting, probably, um, and places he drew inspiration from. So I think that's another thing that's fun about this song is you have to be plugged in and listening carefully to to get them all. And even then, you kind of want to go back and look, which is one of the things I love about the whole study. Anyways, is rereading the lyrics and seeing how they are strung together. But I think this song in particular, it's just like in tandem with the chords on Tad's guitar a left hook and a right punch and a left uppercut of this reference, this reference, this reference, this reference. And you're like, man, there's a whole lot to digest here. And it's pretty fun. And like overwhelming a little bit. Maybe that goes into like, sonically, it's so powerful and gets you so amped. And then it's lyrically overwhelms you with information. I remember one of the first times I heard this, I did kind of, you're like, I can't quite keep up the way you usually can with, I don't know. I was listening to a lot of CCR this week and those songs are like, it's raining outside. I'm stuck in a town and they're like very literal and straightforward. And I think they're brilliant songs, simple, but executed almost perfectly. But that's just in contrast with this set of lyrics that you really are not going to get it all on the first listen. And I feel like this song launched a thousand explainer articles disproportionately to how popular or 
even well received the band was because it's so fun to pick it apart that a journalist is just going to track down every single one of these things. And I think there were blog posts, a number of them that went after this and a couple other songs on Almost Killed Me to specifically sort of show what Craig Finn is doing that's sort of above the rim versus what other lyricists at the time were doing. A Positive Jam is brought to you by Retro Gear Shop. Retro Gear Shop offers a unique selection of high-end musical instruments, recording equipment, and audio gear, and is sold to everyone from Pete Townsend to Arcade Fire to Wilco and more. Check out Retro Gear Shop at RetroGearShop.com and see why it's the premier high-end musical gear shop. Retro Gear Shop. I think both of you kind of are better tapped into the music of this period. Do you think it's fair to say that this approach to song lyrics is pretty unique for the time? The only thing I caveat, I guess I might make is that rappers make these kinds of hyper specific, coy and interesting double meaning type references all the time. And Craig Finn has mentioned that hip hop is a big influence on him lyrically, but just sticking with rock music, do you think that this stands out against the crowd? I'm not sure about the explainer articles because at the time I feel like this was still pretty under the radar. And I don't know that the explainer articles were the blogosphere sort of took off a year or two after this and Pitchfork wasn't doing all this different stuff. So I'm not I'm not sure about the explainer article per se, but the you know, the lyrics, Craig Finn's lyrics and deadpan delivery and the fact that they were playing ACDC style music, I think those are the two things where you're like, oh, that's why you should listen to the hold steady or not. You know, and just the pop culture reference, which looking at it from hindsight, I wonder, I think the song works because even on the surface level, even if there was no meaning, I think the song works really well. And I wonder, sometimes, you you know, people get so excited about making references that it's like sort of a circular thing and not really adding. I I don't know. I just, I think it's interesting to think about in a rock song do you want a rock song to read as densely as a, I don't know, a David Foster Wallace book or something? It, it, like, I, I think that's interesting to think about. Why do we like these references? Why do we, what tickles our fancy? So I, I do think it, to answer your question, I do think it's even at the time, the Tuscan Raiders line for me actually was one where it's like, oh, that's, you know, like I get it. And that one, I'm coming in now with my, that's my hot take on the swish is it ends very poorly (laughs) the tuscan raiders you go through this whole thing and they're all clever and they're all sort of semi not obscure because elizabeth shoe even patty Smythe. these are all performers who had that who are from the past who you kind of need to work a little bit and they're all real people everyone's i think is a real person and then you get to the tuscan raiders which are characters in Star Wars. Star Wars, like all this other stuff is like Americana and like all the references are based in real locations, Newport News, 
Ybor City, we never get an Alderaan reference throughout the whole. It just Tatooine, like it doesn't fit. It's a miss. It's a complete miss for me. It's not thematically consistent with the rest of the song or with the rest of the mission. It rhymes with favors, which I think is why it's there. And the song just like splats right there. It was going so well and going so hard. And then it just lands on a reference that doesn't fit the other references. And then the song is just over. And the Tusken Raiders, like guys don't look like Tusken Raiders. They're like weird with the goggles and stuff, right? Have have you been to City Center, Mike? Have you spent time in the dilapidated Middle America Mall City Center? We don't know what people were wearing at that time. I've seen an oh, you think it's just a reference to their clothes? I thought it was no, to their no, faces. Like no, I think and the Tuscan Raider is the guy like when Luke falls off his horse or something, a guy zaps him with like a magic wizard staff and then he's going like ur, ur, ur. I think that's a Tuscan Raider. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's, the, it's the tall guys, not the Jawas right. who are on Tatooine. The tall yeah. guys, but not the Jawas. Yeah. You know what? If he had re- if he had been like, I got some Jawas knocked me off my bicycle, I think I would <laughs> that might have been a better ending, maybe. So can you defend the ending of the Swish? Here's w- the one caveat. You can't say because it's the end to a great song, it's great. Yeah, I think consistency in the song is is there throughout time period wise. Tuscan Raiders were introduced to the American population a little bit earlier than some of these other oh, uh, okay. these other bands that's not a positive for in its corner necessarily they come first in the chronology of americana but in hindsight at least it seems to be quite the galvanizing cry from the mosh pit at hold steady shows if nothing else and i think people hang on to that reference because that's one that people are familiar with even though it's a relatively subtle Star Wars reference, it's one that people get maybe more than they do any of these other ones. So in a live atmosphere, I think it does resonate. Uh, as it relates to the rest of the, the song, though, I, I agree with you that it's, it's definitely an outlier. I've got two cases to make for it. One is, as we're setting up for it, we're talking about moving pictures. So you've kind of, when you're thinking about moving pictures, especially if we're thinking about the 80s, Star Wars, moving pictures, wow. blockbusters, mm-hmm. I think you've got that. I think as far as the looks, I'm picturing dudes cooking up meth or something like that. Like I'm picturing guys with goggles. I I don't know if that's, I'm like, again, well out of my Put Daniel in AP Lit class. (laughs) Amazing. (laughs) All right. That's a good, good. Okay. So you had more? I had one last one was just that one of the interviews they did in 2004, they talk about clever kids. And they talk about, it's like there's hardcore kids and then there's clever kids who like, kind of like hardcore, but they like Star Wars too. Nerds. I thought that was like a funny, it's obviously not a reference to the interview, but like just sort of a funny, Star Wars is in the universe of Craig Finn's thought process and sort of me. So, okay. So one of these like wannabe party guys, one of these Minnesota suburbs kids ventures out of his comfort zone and he has like a scary run in with some drug dealers or whatever. He's like one of the freaks and geeks from that show. And he goes back to his like nerdy friends and he goes like, wow, what a weekend. Those guys looked like Tuscan Raiders. You know what I mean? Is that what you're saying, Daniel? Like this is like the nerdy side of the scenester lifestyle. 
I'm giving that to you. I think that was <laughs> like, I think it's more just that it's not so out of left field. That's all I was saying. But yeah, like, I think that's a potential way to go with it. It, it doesn't bother me. I think it's a good, I, I, I'm comfortable with the ending. Okay. Endorse. You endorse the ending. So it's two yes. to one. I just wanted to culminate everything that we've said so far, which I, if I were to put a capstone on it, I'd say positive jam is kind of this philosophical mission statement of like, this is who the band is. And then I think the swish qualifies as like a sonic and lyrical mission statement. It's like, okay, so you know that we sort of stand for embracing life, rocking hard, whatever happens, we have these passions and we go after these passions, even if they almost kill us in positive jam. And then in the swish, it's like, all right, let's get specific about what that means. That means that our guitars sound like ACDC, the chords ring out hard, we thrash hard. We're super literary. We make all these intertextual references. And so we're smart. Craig and Tad did this 2014 Vulture interview where they were asked what their favorite songs were on each of their albums. And The Swish is, is Tad's favorite song on this album just because he referenced drinking beers and writing around the kitchen table with Craig and, and how this was one of his favorite songs to put together. Loves the melody and everything. Craig said it's the second favorite song on the album because Positive Jam sets up the album. Here we are. We're the hold steady. We're a rock band, as he says. And then the swish is actually a song. So that's the second punch mm. of, of the one-two punch to, to lead off the album. We'll get into the lyrics of the swish in a minute. But first, we're sharing a little segment we call Map Corner. Map Corner. Okay, the Swish map corner. The Swish, as we're discussing, lots of place references, lots going on. Let's break down a few of them. Song starts off with Pills and Powders, Baby, Powders and Pills. We spent the night last night in Beverly Hills. Beverly Hills, pretty obvious reference. We're talking about a city, its own city, right next to LA, just off of West Hollywood. It boasts the famous zip code 90210. Also, I believe the setting for Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous. It's a rich city. It is where a lot of the stars from Hollywood live up in the hills. It's a reference of ostentation in the context of this song, which makes the next reference even sweeter when we get to the next set of lines. Tights and skirts, baby. Skirts and tights. We used to shake it up in Shaker Heights. Shaker Heights. Suburb of Cleveland, despite Cleveland having the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, it's a long cry from L.A. and Beverly Hills. Shaker Heights specifically, according to Belt Magazine, was one of the nation's first planned communities, a streetcar suburb, bought from the Shaker Religious Colony. Had some challenges as far as redlining and integration in the 50s and 60s, It's a far cry from Beverly Hills, just when you think of ostentation, Cleveland, you know, a Rust Belt city, struggling, more emblematic of the hold steady being from Minneapolis and representing something that's a little bit grittier. A little bit later on, when we get back to the couplets after the B section, we have shoes and socks, baby, socks and shoes. 
We spent the night last night in Newport News. First of all, now we're in Virginia. Obviously, it's giving you the idea that this is a band and they move around quite a bit. Previously, they were in a lifter puller, which did tour. And so they've got the experience of being on the road and seeing a lot of places. Newport News is a city of some 180,000 people. It's sandwiched on a peninsula between Hampton and the James River, right next to Yorktown, scene of the climactic battle of the American Revolutionary War, and some 30 miles from Jamestown, the site of the first English settlement in the now United States. Indeed, according to a Wikipedia citation, Newport News is the oldest English city name in the U.S., I suppose beating out Boston by a few years. Sports fans will remember that Michael Vick is from Newport News. I did not know until researching that Mike Tomlin, and if we're allowed to remember some guys, Al Toon, Aaron Brooks, and Antoine Bethea are from Newport News. I might have known about Aaron Brooks. Allen Iverson is from Hampton, which is on that same narrow peninsula. Circuit City gets a shout out. Not actually a place. And since the electronics chain has gone under, it's not on the map anymore. Unless you're looking for places where Best Buy replaced it, and we'll see how long Best Buy lasts. City Center is a mall in Minneapolis on South 6th Street. This is a few blocks away from Target's headquarters. And next to the Target Center, big music venue, also the home of the Timberwolves and the Lynx basketball teams. Even more relevantly to us, it's close to 1st Avenue, the legendary music venue where Prince, The Replacements, The Hold Steady, and I presume Lifter Puller have all played. Lifter Puller even has a star on the 7th Street side, according to Wikipedia. As a bonus part, Mike also brought up Joni Mitchell's Coyote, a song which makes specific place references, as we mentioned. We've got On the Road to Bal Jenny near my old hometown. Bal Jenny is an unincorporated community that had a mailbox the first time in 1891. It's an hour and a half from Saskatoon, a town to which Joni Mitchell moved when she was 11 and considers her hometown. If you look at it on Google Maps, it looks like two roads that cross in the middle of nowhere in a perfect T. It's just off the North Saskatchewan River. In 2008, CBC News published an article that said, quote, The sight of people living in Baljenny, Saskatchewan, has surprised many folks driving by. You can count to about 10 and you see them turning around. They come back and they say, I didn't know anybody lived out here, Cecilia Parkinson said. That's because nobody did until the Parkinsons bought one of the town's old houses last May. When they moved to Baljenny, the hamlet about 100 kilometers northwest of Saskatoon had been virtually empty for decades, a ghost town. And then the story goes on to say that other members of the family moved, and then some guy from North Battleford is also building a house there. This was 12 years ago. I don't know where we are now with Baljenny, but pretty remote area. Joni has done some wandering. I think an hour and a half from Saskatoon still seems unlikely you'd stumble on Ball Jenny. I don't know Canada all that well, though. Another thing from saskhistoryonline.ca, there's a picture of an aerial photograph of a hamlet containing two grain elevators. An expanse of hilly farmland is visible in the background, dotted with patches of trees. There you go, Ball Jenny. Okay, that's your map corner for the swish. Let's get back to the discussion with me, Mike, and Matt. We try not to do close readings, but I feel like this song 
the lyrics are so rich and fun that we should do a little bit of tinkering around with some of our favorite lyrics from the swish. So I already went with pills and powders as the kickoff. I only have one other thing that the, the inversions here, pills and powders, powders and pills, tights and skirts, skirts and tights. I was listening to a lot of country music this week. And that's something that I can't remember the exact song, but I think it's kind of a country music thing. Beer and fishing, fishing and beer. A cool technique that seemed borrowed from someplace else, at least. Yeah, I like what you just, the, the inversions and the sort of rhythms around tights and skirts, baby skirts and tights. We used to shake it up in Shaker Heights. This chick, she looked just like a Patty Smythe, shaky but nice. I don't know. There's just a lot I like about that as far as just for all the references there. And that one isn't maybe as full. You've got Shaker Heights, you've got Patty Smythe. But did you guys have you guys seen Patty Smythe? Did you like Google image her? Or had you had seen any music videos or anything? Googled in the wake in preparation for this. I remember at the time not not aware of who she was, was still sort of learning about Patty Smith, but Patty Smythe was totally Yeah. So I got confused. I thought Patty Smith and Patty Smythe were the same person for the longest time. They're not. It's one of the most popular questions on Google, apparently. I have her page up. She married John McEnroe. <laughs> <laughs> I wish there was a, is, I don't think there's a John McEnroe reference anywhere in the whole studies of Roe, which is a mistake on Craig Finn's part. You cannot be serious. To say someone looks like Patty Smythe is like extreme because she's got like the spray paint, the like wild makeup and stuff. Striking. When I finally found out what it meant to look like Patty Smythe, I was blown away. Brooks, what's some of your favorite lyrics? I mean, there's quite a few. I think I'm partial to the Rick Danko intro there in the third couplet. She said, my name's Rick Danko. Baby, people call me one hour photo. I've got some hazardous chemicals. So drive around to the window. Drug references, but also... Have any either of you guys seen the movie One Hour Photo with Robin Williams? No, no. You should watch it at some point. It's it's extremely intense and off-putting uh, in terms of your memories of cute, cuddly Robin Williams and jokey guy. But after seeing that movie and then thinking back to this song, it has weird new meaning to me. I think in terms of the bizarre and creepy nature of Robin Williams' character working at a photo counter inside of a drugstore. But I think. That one just feels like it's very hold steady, transactional, related to to scoring some drugs and then figuring out what to do with them after the fact. And I also, the naming, she said my name's so-and-so, almost yeah. every every couplet in here, which, which is fun and sort of leads into the comparing artist to artist, Neil Schoen and Nina Simone, rhyming that with Andre Simone. But it also is something that we see consistently after the fact and one of my other favorite songs by the whole city is is knuckles and that song's yeah. all about trying to get people to call me something versus something else i mean i like the sort of yeah the reflective mirroring from from verse to verse and, and like stand to the stands in here it's just it's got a nice rhythm to it all yeah to build on that this album is about identity it's about who we who we are what your name is and who you look like and who you can be compared to are obviously different ways of looking at the question of identity and especially the disconnect between 
what you call yourself, what your own name is and what other people call you is perception versus reality of your own selfhood that I think is really rich in the Hold Steady's lyrics. And it taps into this idea of you want to think of yourself as a hardcore person, or you want to think of yourself as a tough guy or like a cool party, or you want to think of yourself as smarter and more literate than the other people around you, which is, those are all themes that sort of reverberate throughout the entire album. And certainly were things that really drove me philosophically listening to this album. I was inspired pills and powders, powders and pills. The message I took away from that for better or worse, and I'm not saying one way or another how much it influenced my actual actions, but it was like, oh, that's the next step in partying. If you like going out to bars and drinking and mixing it up and smoking cigarettes and stuff, if you open your sort of lyrical over with a reference to cocaine and hard drugs, that's like a flag in the sand of like, you might be here, listener, but I'm like three steps in a more extreme direction. I tried to take steps after hearing this type of music towards living a more libertine existence. But as the two of you who know me today know, I'm a soft, sensitive guy underneath. <laughs> and so I think this like identity question is, is an interesting one. And what your experiences mean about who you are and what people see in you versus what you think of yourself is really interesting. And then finally, I think it's just a good device to say that things look like something or that people see something in you is just from a literary perspective. It's a way to bring in a whole other reference to someone like Andre Simon. It's a way to like sort of drop things into the lyrics that otherwise wouldn't fit. Because you, you don't want to always be like, I'm just like Andre Simon. Technically, from a like composition standpoint, I think it's a really clever way to get more into the lyrics. The sort of what other people think of you may actually shed more light than what you think of yourself. And do you guys, am I, am I alone in this kind of like taking inspiration from the lyrics to like party harder or like go out and try and like live a freer life? Cause I would listen to this and get amped before I was about to go out to the bars with my buddies. I was still basically straight edge when this album came out. And so that's where, you know, that line comes up in the next track. I think getting amped just in general, yes. Also getting amped about as I was getting into independent music and being like, oh, but this is actually stuff. I remember telling one of my professors about the whole study and I remember I would try to like play tracks that I liked in our wrestling room in college and try to like evangelize these different sorts of music and this felt like an easier sell but no not not for party <laughs> for me it's the type of jam that that i would crank up to 11 before going out but just to crush a bunch of beers and drink a bunch of whiskey which is which is all well and good or to go to a show or something like that i think now that we're older and as mike as you said softer in some ways this is a type of song that i will all or this is a song that i will always have on a mix for a race that I'm running. And it's the type of thing that, that it kicks in and you're like, yes, all right, I've got a second wind. This is going to kick me in the butt and I'm ready to, to climb this hill because of the way that it, that it comes in and 
and just the beat and the guitars. And it's, it's one there that you are like, man, I'm so glad this is on the playlist. Cause I really needed someone to kick me in the ass right now to finish this race. My name's Matt Brooks. People call me Prefontaine. <laughs> I run really fast <laughs> up a hill. So it sounds like I was the only person to really take it super literally, but that's okay. I love I leaned right over the counter just to kiss you because it leads yes. right into some lead lead licks. So I feel like we ought to mention that. And then I think if we go any further, oh, there's one other thing. It was a blockbuster summer. I remember reading in an interview, I think this was with the AV Club, which is now under ownership that doesn't appear to maintain the archives very well. But there's a Q&A with the AV Club, and I think this is where it's sourced. From my memory, I have quote from Craig Finn that he in the recorded albums doesn't use swear words because he remembered not being able to get certain albums his parents would get mad at him if he had them and they had explicit lyrics on them so the lyrics on the recorded albums are censored and one of those is it was a blockbuster summer so instead of blockbuster there's a three syllable word that compound rhymes with blockbuster and I just think that's a fun little nugget. I've heard that live, I think. Brooks, you've been to a lot of live shows. Have you heard swear words replacing some of the words in uh, old steady songs? Yes, I've definitely heard heard a few. And whether or not Craig actually vocalizes them or just mouths them to the audience, and you know, <laughs> you know what he's saying, which is one of his favorite things to do, which is uh, to belt out a line and then and then echo himself and then echo himself again, not into the microphone. Yeah, it happens for sure. If you're heavy into the hold study and like nerding out about song structure, maybe you also like cool, unique pieces of musical gear and equipment. If so, you should know that A Positive Jam is brought to you by Retro Gear Shop. Want to get the latest updates and news on vintage gear editions and new top-end gear for your studio? Email list at retrogearshop.com with the subject line Positive Jam and get added to the Retro Gear Shop newsletter as well as 10% off your next purchase. Just email list at retrogearshop.com or go to retrogearshop.com slash pages slash contact and fill out the form with Positive Jam in the message and get 10% off your next high-end musical gear purchase from Retro Gear Shop. All right, uh, let's cruise into final notes. For me, that's a musical musical note. So for Positive Jam, I mentioned half steps and embellishing chords with half steps because the intro to that song has that D minor, D sus 2 progression or riff, I guess you'd call it. Here, the first big bar chord you get, which is an A major, I think, then also has a half note embellishment, goes between three and four, and it, again, doing a ton with a little in terms of just adding little half steps to chords. Again, we see that in the Swish, the band does that super effectively. But the main musical thing I wanted to point out, and the reason we're talking about ACDC so much at the beginning is because this song picks up on a technique that they use a lot, which is the guitar coming in on the on beats and then coming in on the off beats. And that's when the guitars first come in and they're ringing out for whole notes. 
it switches to the off beats toward the end of that progression. Dana, dana. I just find myself as I'm trying harder and harder to learn rhythm guitar, seeing that making the listener wait that extra eighth note for the chord to come in will just blow your doors off musically. And it's something that ACDC perfected. And I think that Tad is uh, really leaning hard into here. Gentlemen, any final notes about the swish? The two musical things I like here beyond just Finn's delivery and just how he's kind of rolling through the whole song are, I remember when on the next album, little hood rat friend came out and there was like, Oh, they finally have a chorus. Craig Finn wrote a chorus. It was a weird point of emphasis. It basically was the first time he was repeating himself. But here, the intro and then the A section, B section, it's just really smartly written as a song. Just the the construction of putting it together, I think, is really smart beyond the nuances that you just called out. And I really like the B section guitars where, you know, she said my name's Rick Danko. The, the guitars are just kind of swirling. You know, I wrote down that it reminds me of water running around a bowl in a toilet, but it's like, in a good way, right? Well, you know, it I mean, things it, clean, you know, <laughs> but it's just that I, I don't know, swish, like the swishing there. We're swishing through this and you say we're running through this. Like there's so, that of sort of circular energy. motion here. <laughs> Yeah, maybe not the toilet, right. but I'm that's kicking you out of AP lit class, Daniel. <laughs> <laughs> you got in, and now you're, back right, and you're flunking out again. <laughs> I tried. I tried. One thing on that though, there's a lot made, or it, when they were talking a lot, I feel like it was very fashionable to have quote unquote unconventional song structures around this time. I'm thinking of bands like Modest Mouse and Built to Spill, and pitchfork friendly indie bands i feel like a lot of good album reviews were centered around how unconventional the song structure was and i just want to going back to the ending and me not being quite satisfied with it i think that it's something that didn't always age well with some of these bands that sometimes they were just sort of lazily slapped together a song and then say that it was unconventionally constructed I don't think that's the case here. I think this is strong for the way it's built, like you said, Daniel. One of the many things that can be irritating about Pitchfork is sort of over-intellectualizing something that's a little bit maybe just dumb. I feel like it's more just Craig's style of writing. I mean, it's it's storytelling, and in storytelling, you're not necessarily going to be looping back around and hitting your reader over the head with the same line on repeat. And you don't necessarily need to do that song structurally to write a successful and rocking song. But overall, I mean, I think my affinity for this track is is just that it, it really, really rocks. It's big. It's loud. It's in your face. The guitars are fantastic. The drums kick in at the right point. The buildup in the intro is really what gets you into this album. And it's just a jam. I think it's just a total rock and roll jam. If you've seen the video for this song, it's very not hold steady. They're they're wearing suits. They're wearing like pencil skinny black ties. They look like the Hives, which was a band that was out in the early 2000s and had some really great rock edge to them too. But it, I think they're they're just channeling their their rock roots lyrically, but also just in the way that the song came together. And it's a lot of fun as a result. 
the Beatles wore that outfit on the Ed Sullivan show. Yeah, they've all done it. It just rocks. It's just a jam. I think that's the best place to end. Thanks to Matt Brooks. You can support him by checking out the Washington Post's Voraciously website, and he's on Twitter at MattBrooksWP. All rights of song sample belong to their original creators, with these versions by Joni Mitchell, the band, and Patty Smythe, respectively, and of course, the whole steady. You can subscribe to a positive jam wherever you get podcasts. If you like what we're doing, please share with a friend or leave a review on Apple. This has been a Shortman Studios production. To get in touch with us, DM us at Shortman Studios on Twitter, or look me up at Daniel Shortman or Mike at M. Brooks Taylor. Or email us at mail at shortmanstudios.com. Join us next week for my favorite track on the album, Barkford Blues. I did a couple favors for these guys who look like Tuscan Raiders.